If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. Tonight on Revolt Black News. I have an email in my inbox letting me know if I got laid off or not. Black people losing their jobs at alarming rates. Diversity fatigue is a real it's a real issue and a reality. We're examining the diversity backlash. Black people are often seen as some of the most expendable assets within an organization. Plus, did I feel like a slave? Absolutely. Forced to work for free. Three years from now, we'll be celebrating 250 years of freedom in this country, and yet there's an entire class of underserved citizens right in our backyards. RBN investigates the loophole that makes what some are calling modern day slavery perfectly legal. The Chicago you see on TV is not the Chicago that's depicted in The Shy. Where does the media get it wrong? It's a lot of scare tactics and fear when you see a headline and say this amount of people got shot. I'm talking to Jacob Lattimore, star of The Shy, the show's new season in the real Chicago. The city of Chicago is beautiful. The restaurants, those skylines, and yeah, yeah it's lit. All that and more as the Black News Revolution starts right now. Whatever vote, let's get it. Welcome to the show, everyone. I'm Mara Escampo. We begin tonight with an update to a story that we've been following. I just want answers because it's going to be almost a year. Shamanique Wickerson, mother of the three murdered Texas sisters, shared last month with Revolt Black News her one wish, justice. I would like answers before July, before my birthday and before the uh, balloon release in July. That's all I want. Now, just days before the first anniversary of their gruesome deaths and a beautiful celebration planned for this weekend to honor their lives, Wickerson is still without answers about who committed this heinous crime. Shamanique's girls, Amaya, Tamari, and Zaariel, were taken from their home the evening of July 29th. They were sexually abused and killed. Their beaten bodies left in a pond just 500 feet from their rural Texas home. Initially, I was told that they had drowned, uh, accidental drowning. Speaking about the case on camera for the first time ever in this exclusive Revolt video, the grieving mother described to us the initial confusion regarding the investigation. But after the autopsy report came out, I was told that they were strangled, they had lacerations to their faces, and they were also, yes, sexually assaulted. Wickerson also spoke with me over the phone, sharing alarming details about the man with a criminal history who was watching her six children at the time three of them disappeared. Who was the last person who was with the girls? Um, a family member that's been staying with us for almost two years, my cousin, Paris. For months, Revolt Black News has pushed Cass County officials for answers on what happened to these three little girls. And if there has been any progress in the case at all, why hasn't anyone been questioned or arrested? We contacted the Texas Rangers again this week regarding Paris props and the ongoing investigation, but still no response. Had he watched the girls before? Yes. He's always watched them. Have you ever had any issues with him? No, ma'am. 
what did your four-year-old see? Uh, all she said was that the girls went into the wood with Paris. And she just kept repeating it over and over and over. To your knowledge, has law enforcement questioned Paris? Uh, they talked to him at the house the day after, but ever since after that, no. But a source tells Revolt Black News Props was spotted just days ago, still walking the streets of Cass County, Texas, a free man. What would you say to the district attorney? If my kids were a different color, it'll be a different story. They would not be lounging around, dragging their feet, taking their time. They would have been in jail that same night. But since that's not the case, they don't really care. This is Cass County. Cass County don't care about Black people. They never have, they never will. Revolt Black News will stay on this story and keep demanding answers. A GoFundMe account has been set up for the Wickerson family. You can help and find more information on our Instagram page. Moving on now to jobs. Have you ever heard the saying that we're always the last hired and the first fired? Well, it seems like that might be happening right now. After the great news that Black unemployment recently hit record lows, we're now seeing that Black people make up a staggering 90% of those who lost their jobs in June. Nine out of 10, let that sink in. And these numbers are crossing business sectors and economic groups. Well, tonight, Revolt Black News examines what's behind the rise in Black unemployment. I just got home and I have an email in my inbox letting me know if I got laid off or not. So we're gonna read it together. Let me just get inside. In April, Stephanie Alcon received news from her boss that no one wants to hear. Dear Stephanie, I'm writing to share that your role as blah, 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 blah has been eliminated. Stephanie, like several thousand other black and unemployed people across the country, suddenly found herself without a job and actively looking for work. You literally submit an application and you just pray that the gods put it in someone's inbox that a real person and they actually look at it. I don't understand why no one looks at applications or no one gets back to you. Like, I, I, I don't get it. And she's not alone. While the national unemployment rate is at a 50-year low of 3.6%, the Bureau of Labor Statistics show that Black unemployment is actually up. In fact, an alarming 90% of newly unemployed people during the month of May were Black. If you were in this layoff world like I am right now, um, don't get discouraged. I got three no's today. I opened my email and I was like, no, no, no. After the murder of George Floyd in 2020, Americans gained a renewed interest in both understanding and making amends with the Black community. Companies big and small welcoming new Black employees with open arms. Well, since last summer's protests over the death of George Floyd, many American companies have put a bigger emphasis on diversity and inclusion. A recent study found that many businesses increased representation of black executives on their senior leadership teams 41% since 2020. And for many companies, that also meant brand new diversity and inclusion positions, which increased a whopping 67%. Minority employees were such a hot commodity at the time, this woman was exposed by her own mother for faking minority status in order to get a job in DEI. Raquel Saraswati was allegedly gay, Muslim, Latina of South Asian and Arab descent. 
Absolutely none of which is true. Despite the hype of diversity and inclusion roles in recent years, recent months have revealed that many of these roles have started to disappear. Well, I can't speak to exactly what companies are thinking. I do think that diversity fatigue is a real is a real issue and a reality. Roughly 60% of diversity officers left their positions in a three-year time span. Even worse, many of those positions are being left unfilled, and listings for DEI roles on job boards are down nearly 20%. And in Hollywood, a recent exodus of DEI leaders from some of the biggest names, like Netflix, Warner Brothers Discovery, and Disney. With diversity no longer the trend, Black employees across the board are feeling the effects. If you think about some of the employment trends that we're seeing right now, um, is that Black workers over-index in the service industry, and oftentimes the service sectors and lower-wage roles across the board tend to be more vulnerable under economic pressure. Andrew McCaskill is a LinkedIn career expert. He and other industry leaders say that while Black unemployment numbers may sound alarming, this could be a temporary trickle-down effect. Unfortunately, it's one that impacts the Black community the hardest. Listen, I think what we know is that when America gets a cold, Black folks get the flu. We know that. Racism still exists in the workforce. But I think what's more prescient is that while these numbers are hard realities, the wheels of the car are not falling off. Uh, We had unprecedented um, hiring with Black Americans in the past two years. And the reality is, is that the car is not falling apart. It's just slowing down. Katie Bond of the Urban Institute agrees with Andrew, telling NPR the current unemployment stats are just noise. The Federal Reserve has been raising interest rates to try to address inflation. That will disproportionately hurt Black workers. So I think that's really what we want to keep our eye on. But noise or not, Black people are hurting. It was just really almost degrading in a sense, is being ghosted and like gaslit through the entire job application process. The number of unemployed Black men in the U.S. increased to 5.6%. Black men are often employed in transportation or warehousing positions. But it's actually Black women who have been impacted by unemployment the most. In addition to being heavily represented in the public sector, Black women also work heavily in retail, leisure, and hospitality. McCaskill recommends that those looking for work hone in on transferable skills to increase their odds of finding a job. The fastest growing population on LinkedIn right now are folks who are in, who are what we consider to be first line and front line workers. The skills game is really where it's at. Think about it like this. A bartender has about 71% of the same skills that you need to lead in a customer service role, right? So you could potentially go from working for tips for 12 hours a day to actually then using those same skills to find a job as a customer service rep, right? Where you can be on salary, have medical benefits, and not have to work on your feet for 12 hours. I've been employed for almost like four months now. Mackenzie Jada is a 22-year-old influencer who is actively looking for work. So I'm currently looking for a job, as we all know. Using her TikTok, Mackenzie shares her journey along with the frustration and challenges she encounters as a recent college grad trying to find a job in this current market. I think being in your early 20s, trying to make a decision on what job you want to take is actually like one of the hardest things. And let me tell you why. Do I want to take a job that I'm really interested in, but get paid shillings, literal shillings, shillings, and barely be able to live? Or do I get 
take a higher paying job doing something that I have no interest in, probably am not really into the industry, don't really care much for it, but at least get paid enough to eat sushi for dinner. Can I just get a cup of black coffee, please? As for Stephanie, her job search continues, but she says being intentional about looking for work is imperative. She's committed to applying for positions every day while sitting at a local coffee shop. We're done three hours later, three jobs. Took a long time. See you tomorrow. Well, we're not done with this important topic yet. There is a lot more to discuss. Coming up, do employers have black people fatigue? We'll be right here talking about it on the other side of the break. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. Bada ba ba ba. At participating McDonald's. Black employment um, is down three straight months now with 635,000 jobs uh, lost in that spell, uh, which is the most ever in a three-month stretch outside of the pandemic. This uh, data certainly particular, particularly is volatile, so it's most useful to, to measure in a quarterly basis over three months instead of one, one to, uh, to smooth out noise, right? Because there is this one is a little bit more noisy. Welcome back. Black people are losing jobs at an alarming rate, and we want to know why. Joining me now to talk about it are author and content creator Garrison Hayes and DEI consultant Tyranny Thurmond. Thank you to you both for being here. Um, so, Tyranny, I want to start with you and, and to talk about the impact that this really has on families. Yeah. There's, there's so much whiplash here. You know, in April, we saw the lowest black unemployment numbers in history. And now in June, we're seeing 90% of those who were laid off or fired were black people. Yeah. So what effect is this having on black families? Yeah, I mean, it's having a huge impact. When we think about the families that are, you know, impacted by this unemployment rate, we're, we're talking about um, families that don't have access to housing, that may not get adequate access to food, and um, and also having the ability to really pay, pay your bills. So when we think about people being unemployed, we have to be considerate of their ability to take care of themselves collectively, and also how a community begins to rally around those people to ensure that each one gets their needs met. Uh, Garrison, the White House um, has responded to this, and they've said, you know, and they've been very proud of their black unemployment numbers. This has been something that they've been talking about for months, the historic lows that we've seen with black unemployment. And in response to these June numbers, they're saying, well, you know, not so fast. We can't really extrapolate too much from one month's worth of numbers. We really should wait for quarterly numbers to come out. Do you think that's fair, or is there still a lesson to be taken from what we saw in June? This could be, as some experts say at the Urban League, a little bit of noise in the data, meaning that statisticians could have been a little off on their numbers back in April. And then looking at over the next kind of couple of months, we'll see if that correction is really just getting better data. But I don't think we can really have this conversation without also considering the ways in which the culture has truly shifted over the last few years. Moving from Black Lives Matter in the summer of 2020 where everybody seemed to love black people, to the change in tone that we've seen when white people don't get to be the center of attention for a single summer. And, and now that change in tone is significant. And so we're seeing that, that, that change have real life implications on whether or not, as you mentioned, families can feed their kids, 
You know, we've seen these people go on the anti-CRT and anti-Black history crusades. And I think this is a real-life implication of that anti-woke crusade that we've seen over the last several years. Yeah, and you are absolutely right about that. I mean, it feels like in 2020, they couldn't get enough of, you know, diversity talk and other, a lot of it felt performative. There were, you know, black people on commercials all of a sudden. I mean, black people falling from the rafters, right? Now it seems that there's a little bit of DEI fatigue. What are you hearing about what's happening in the workplace when it comes to diversity and inclusion efforts? And, and where does that leave black people in the workplace, those who are, yeah. are employed, but may be feeling a shift in the culture. Particularly as a consultant, I think it's really important to consider people who do this work, myself included, we look at ourselves as a subject and the object of the work. And so we are essentially embodying um, socialized identities that are, have been marginalized, but we're also advocating for attention, for adequate services, for ad adequate resources to ensure that our lives can still be whole. So when we think about how that shows up in the workplace, people are tired. The black tax is real, me having to take care of myself economically and taking care of other people, and me having to go to work and ensure that my, my qualifications aren't challenged, that my intellect isn't questioned. And so when we think about how people are showing up in, at work in their, in their working environments, the fatigue associated with doing diversity work is extreme, but also being a person of color or from a historically marginalized background and showing up in, in these spaces can be even more exhausting. And what do you think is the appropriate response to diversity issues in the workplace. I've always found it to be a little bit troubling that you're asking people to clean up a mess that has harmed them. Yes. It's like, well, why aren't the those in power doing the DEI work? Why are you asking black people to clean up a mess that's been hurting black people? Mm -hmm. So what is the appropriate response if a company or place of work really does want to address their diversity and inclusion issues. Yeah, I think one of the things that organizations really have to start thinking about is how do we identify positionality and power? So when we think about dominance in the workplace, particularly white supremacy in the workplace, because it does, it shows up, and how do we make sure that we're working as an organization to ensure that we're repairing past damage and we are mindful of historical issues? Because you can't just go in and think that you're gonna fix something without acknowledging the historical challenges that got us here, because otherwise we end up hiring people of color, particularly black people, and say, okay, we're gonna have this person serve as our vice president or our um, manager of DEI, we're not truly understanding what that role consists of and not giving those leaders the appropriate resources that they need to do the work and be impactful in the work. Yeah, that's an important point, is that are you setting people up for success or are you exactly. setting them up for failure? Um, Garrison, and going back to these unemployment numbers, you, you have said that you think there's a, a larger agenda at play. What do you think is really going on here? Black people aren't perceived as valuable. And so when we see the economic forces and the shifts happening in our economy, Black people are often seen as some of the most expendable assets within an organization. And so that larger agenda is really at work to remove Black people from the places of power that we found ourselves in. You know, we see this happening specifically in the law. I, I think we're all familiar with race-based affirmative action in admissions being overturned by the Supreme Court. Well, the very people who, who brought that lawsuit, namely Edward Bloom, is also working to ensure that there are no diversity quotas on publicly traded companies. Now, this is important for us to think about. You know, there's been an effort to ensure that Black people have representation in the workforce, in these corporations, publicly traded corporations, no less. And there are efforts to ensure that those quotas, that those, those safeguards, that those efforts 
are destroyed. And why? I think it's patently anti-Black. That's the agenda, in my in my opinion. When we think about um, things that happen on a micro, meso, or macro level, there are individuals that are working tirelessly to ensure that they are making the money they need to sustain their lives. But if there is an organization that is not committed to diversity, that is not committed to making sure that their systems are equitable, that is not committed to ensuring that there's a commitment to inclusion, then unfortunately, black people will continue to lose economic opportunities, it's essentially losing jobs. And this is why I'm a real big advocate for ensuring that there's an entrepreneurial spirit in you and that we're consistently tapping into to make sure that we're creating our own opportunities for ourselves and for our communities. Well, to that end, and I love the idea of empowering ourselves and empowering our communities, and of course, when it comes to employment, that's somewhat limited, because if you're not an employer, you can't necessarily help solve this problem. So what are some ways that we can support each other? I think one of the things that comes to mind for me is that there are people in positions of power in corporations right now, black people who have influence and have power. Use your influence and your power to support black contractors, uh, production companies, creative agencies, DEI professionals, speakers for ERGs and business resource groups. Bring those folks in. They are experiencing a great deal of turmoil at this time and leverage your influence to do that. Be present in the community and support people with businesses, large and small. I think that's a phenomenal way for us to continue to invest our hard earned dollars into our community. Yeah, and that's an important point is to, to spend our money where, where it really counts and in a way that supports our own values. Uh, Tyranny Thurman, Garrison Hayes, I appreciate your perspectives on this really important conversation. Well, speaking of labor, when we come back, what if I told you that there was an entire group of black people who are working, but only because they are forced to and they get paid next to nothing? That's coming up after the break. Hey there, ever thought about what makes your heart beat a little faster? Oh, you mean like when you discover a new track that just speaks to you? Yeah, or finding a movie that you can't stop thinking about? Well, get ready to feel that excitement all over again because Amazon Prime is here to take your entertainment and shopping experience to the next level. Absolutely. Prime isn't just about getting your packages quicker. It's about diving into a world of endless possibilities, from the latest releases to exclusive content you won't find anywhere else. And don't even get me started on the music. Prime offers concert specials that will transport you right to the front room. It's like being at the hottest gigs without leaving your living room. I use Prime to tap in with some of my favorite artists' live shows from any and every genre of music. Trust me, Prime is a game changer. It's like having a personalized superstore and entertainment hub right at your fingertips. So why wait? Head over to Amazon.com forward slash Prime and start experiencing entertainment like never before. Welcome back. There's an $11 billion business being run in this country that's only paying most workers 13 to 52 cents per hour. In some states, workers are forced to work for free. Yes, free, and it's totally legal. That's thanks to a loophole in the law where prisons in this country can force inmates to work for next to nothing. And with black people making up about 39% of the prison population, big profits are being made on the backs and cheap labor of black people. Well, now there's a movement in several states to close that loophole and to stop what they call unfair exploitation. 
Revolt Black News investigates, is prison labor the new slavery? At the age of 21, I was arrested and convicted for robbery. I got sentenced to 15 years. Out of those 15 years, I served 12 years and 10 months. Johnny Perez was in and out of jail from the time he was 16. At 21, an armed robbery conviction landed him in prison for nearly 13 years, behind bars and forced to join a labor pool that few outside of the prison industry even know about. All of the programs are mandatory, specifically all of the jobs within the prison are mandatory. I had a number of jobs working in the kitchen, serving food. And one of my longest running jobs as a seamstress where I sold underwears, um, socks, pillowcases that were going back into the population. I did that for about five and a half years at about 17 cents an hour with no days off, no bereavement time, no sick time. Making just a dollar and 36 cents a day, Johnny's sewing assignments didn't come with days off, sick days, or an HR department to report concerns. For many, the idea of prisoners working for low wages doesn't seem unreasonable. But a deeper look into the underbelly of prison labor reveals a culture of unimaginable cruelty and abuse. I was called derogatory names plenty of times from the N-word to having you know, my intelligence assaulted to being told this is all you're good for. And to argue back means that you will also be placed in solitary confinement which is the underbelly of the threat of almost every behavior inside of these carceral settings. Yeah, did I feel like a slave? Absolutely. It's the solitary confinement that still haunts Johnny more than a decade later. 23 to 24 hours a day locked in a cell the size of your bathroom. So solitary confinement is a mechanism of control that the prisons use to control the population. From my own personal experience, it impacts your sleeping patterns. To this day, I only get about four hours of sleep, right? The cell is very small. You have little to no human contact. You know, like, what does it mean to be locked in a cell 10 months, 11 months at a time, where you can't see no further than your eyeballs? To this day, I wear glasses, as you can see. But despite lasting damage for more than a decade working for next to nothing in the brutal New York prison system, now, for the first time, the 44-year-old has a career with purpose. Slavery never ended. It evolved, it changed. As the director of the United States Prisons Programs at the National Religious Campaign Against Torture, Johnny is leading the charge to rid the horrors of prison labor. Policies and laws exist because taxpayers allow it to happen. If you have a problem with slavery, don't let it happen under your name. 11 million people cycle through the system every year. They're forced into this type of servitude. In 1865, the 13th Amendment of the United States was passed, abolishing slavery across the country. But there's an exception. The 13th Amendment abolished slavery, except for me. Except for me. Except for me. The amendment does not apply to people convicted of a crime. Many Americans don't know that this still exists. So what that, what that means is that now, by us hopefully being able to remove this exclusion, forces these departments to ensure that people, and currently incarcerated people, receive living wages. I felt the weight of being uh, less than, being a beast of burden. Johnny was among the one in 81 Black adults that populate state-run prisons at nearly five times the numbers of white Americans. Most of the people that are forcing people into labor are white. And most of the people who are forced, you know, into this type of servitude are people of color. And it's a shame that here we are three years from now, we'll be celebrating 250 years of freedom in this country 
and yet there's an entire class of underserved citizens right in our backyards is still allowed to happen. So why are these disturbing labor conditions still happening? It's all about the Benjamins. Research shows prisons use their inmates as a cost-saving measure. Plus, businesses like Sprint and Verizon receive a $2,400 tax credit for every prisoner they hire. The Malta Justice Initiative also lists major companies who benefit from inmate labor. And both private and state-run facilities are making big money off the backs of inmates. As the nation's fifth largest correctional system, we build, own, and manage secure correctional facilities. These folks started making contracts with states. The states were required to keep these prisons filled even if nobody was committing a crime. It was absolutely a model guaranteed to succeed. Last year, the Chicago News reported that America's incarcerated produced $2 billion in goods and $9 billion worth of prison maintenance work annually. But because it's rarely monitored, these eye-popping numbers could easily be far greater. Before I went to prison, I was a regular 23-year-old living in Atlanta, going to church, making money every day to figure out how to party and just enjoy my youth in the city. Britt White served a five-year sentence in Alabama for trafficking marijuana. Towards the end of her time, she was allowed community status. She clocked in five days a week at Burger King. The state of Alabama would take 60% of my check because I was the property of the state of Alabama. You um, automatically turn over 40% of your earnings to the state of Alabama for the cost of incarcerating you. In addition to that, you pay $5 a day for transportation to and from the job. Following her sentence, Britt wanted to make a change. In 2022, she was accepted to Harvard Law School's Institute to End Mass Incarceration. She just completed training to become a community organizer. Like Johnny, the 37-year-old has seen the damage prison labor does to the soul. I still harbor an immense amount of survivor's remorse. And I think of the women who helped me across that five years who do not currently have a pathway home. And what is their quality of life? What does it mean to be incarcerated for decades and constantly have your labor taken advantage of. According to Britt, the issue isn't with prisoners working while incarcerated. It's the immense disrespect. So it may be surprising to hear Britt defend prison labor. I don't want to completely villainize working it while you're incarcerated, especially being community status, because it's how so many of my sisters have been able to take care of themselves when they do not have outside support when their family members have died off. What I'm here to make a case for is that these are human beings who deserve to be treated with dignity and that we should not be paying people a slave wage and stealing their labor and taking advantage of them while they are currently incarcerated. That is inhumane. And we as a society are better than that. Brittany tells the truth. And I think that we need the level of courage. And what you don't know is that half the time her knees are shaking, but that's what leadership is. We need honesty. And they've taken that truth to state leaders across the country and have seen some progress. I think that success is on a spectrum. And so on the smaller scale of the spectrum, I would like to give a shout out to states like Colorado and even Alabama who have taken the slavery language out of their state constitutions. I think that especially in the South, 
That is very courageous and a great start to begin to modify this issue. But we still have so much work to begin to do. As their campaign continues to make inroads, we asked Johnny what he would say to encourage the black community to join him in the fight against what he calls prison slave labor. And I like that question. And I'm speaking not as an advocate, but as a father. And if my daughter or my son were to break the law in this country, I would want to know that, you know, the leaders that I've elected are holding them unaccountable and that accountability does not look like being forced to clean toilets or being forced to work under the hot sun for hours of the day like how they do in Louisiana. I would like to know that my daughter is safe from sexual assault. I would like to think that my son is free from the mental harms of being placed in solitary. You know, and what people who have never been incarcerated should know that all of our greatest minds are incarcerated. We have to really take a look and say, you know, do I want to be treated like this? Do I want my kids to be treated like this? And, and, and how is this reflective of what I want to see happen? Switching gears now, when we come back, our Kennedy Rue is here, and the Shy's own Jacob Lattimore is letting her know how the media is getting Chicago all wrong. Everybody loves McDonald's fries. So yes, you accused your mom of stealing some of your fries on the way home. Um, but the bag did feel a little light. Welcome back. It's shy time. Our Kennedy Rue is here, and she got a chance to spend some quality time with multi-hyphenate entertainer Jacob Lattimore. Hey, Kennedy. Hey, Mara. Yes, I did get a chance to sit down with singer, actor, dancer, and star of the hit Showtime series, the shy Jacob Lattimore. He's only 26, but has been in the limelight almost as long as he's been alive. And we got a chance to talk about his already long career, what he loves about Chicago, and what the media gets wrong about the Windy City. Chicago is a city in crisis right now. This weekend left 10 people dead, 44 others wounded in shootings across the city. Crime numbers near an all-time high in the loop. If you watch the news, the Chicago you see on TV is not the Chicago that's depicted in the shy. Where does the media get it wrong? I just think no one's really out in, this, in the streets and really experiencing it for themselves. It's a lot of scare tactics and fear when you see a headline and say somebody got murdered or some, this amount of people got shot. It's the tale of two Chicagos. The media crowning it America's murder capital with 697 homicides last year. And Showtime's The Shy showing the humanity of the black community that is so often criminalized in popular culture. The city is all we got. <laughs> We're gonna stumble sometimes, but we gotta help each other get back up again. And despite the media depiction of Chicago, tell me about the Chicago you've grown to know. Yo, I turned 21 in Chicago, mm -hmm. so it was it was a vibe. I mean, the restaurants yeah. are beautiful. The, I, I love going out on the lake and getting out on the yacht and, and yeah. chilling and looking at those skylines. Now 26, Jacob has spent the past six years filming the show in Chicago, playing the sneaker-obsessed Emmett. And he admits he's also seen the city's dark side. And I think Chicago represents a lot of cities that are dangerous in mm -hmm. certain areas. You can't walk in certain neighborhoods. You mm -hmm. know, it's just, you won't. Why, why, why should you? You yeah. know what I mean? You know what's going down there. I, I went down to the South 
side one time. I did. Mm-hmm. I, I went to a pool party, mm-hmm. and uh, I was like, yeah, I shouldn't <laughs> be here. <laughs> hey, what's up, everybody? This your boy, Jacob Lattimore. Jacob grew up 90 miles from Chicago in Milwaukee, where he began performing as a child, launching his career in the most unlikely of places. I have become so famous, especially at school. You've been at this for a long time, thank making you, your you. first talk show appearance at age 10 on the Maury Povich <laughs> they love show. that story. <laughs> what do you remember about that experience? I was just fearless. Yeah. I was fearless. I was coming out of Milwaukee, and I was just like, yeah, I'm about to go perform. You know what I mean? Right. And, you know, I come down them steps just like just ready, you know? And yeah. I got my dancers with me. I got an original song. Yeah. You know, I ain't doing no covers. I felt, I felt good. Soon after, he began releasing music and appearing in movies like The Maze Runner and Collateral Beauty, starring Will Smith. I feel like you blew up so young. Mm-hmm. You were on magazine covers <laughs> right. as an adolescent. Yeah. Talk to me about what that did for your confidence, and did the heartthrob thing ever go to your head when you were young? Um, no, I, I, I think God has always humbled me, quick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Quick. Right. So it was, it was always just focusing on just the love I have for it and just focusing on, on God. I think that was like the huge part of every lesson I had. Though he has had a few hit singles, it's his five seasons on The Shy that has made him one of the most promising young black actors of his generation. He's getting more movies and more TV offers and more media attention too. He's also facing a whole new set of challenges that comes with growing fame. How much thought do you give to choosing roles or characters that are unapologetically, but not stereotypically black? I try not to think about it, even though it may be a thing. Even when auditions weren't typically for me, mm-hmm. uh, if, the, if the outline, if they wasn't even looking for a young black kid, I'll, mm-hmm. I'll just go in there and audition. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I think for me it was like, why, why can't I audition? They, right. they don't know. They don't know until they see it. How do you maintain? your privacy in the sense of, in this world of social media. It's like, if I ain't been on social media in two months, like it's, it's fine. And I think it just helps me in my personal life as well. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. I just want to keep it about the work. That's what I'm doing. Exactly. You know, yeah. The personal's personal. Personal's personal. <laughs> if I decide to pop out like, hey, this who I'm with, you know right. what I mean, or this, but. Um, right. It's, you know, it's up to you. The Shy begins streaming August 4th on Paramount Plus with Showtime. I'm looking forward to all the twists and turns this season, but more than that, I'm looking forward to seeing Jacob Starr continue to rise. Absolutely, he is so talented. Cannot wait to see what he does next. We'll be right back. Who needs an alarm in the morning? When McDonald's has sausage, egg, and cheese McGriddles. And a breakfast cutoff. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Before we leave you tonight, there is one more thing that we want you to see.
It's your girl Kennedy Rue here with the one and only Usher. Thank you so much for joining me today, Usher. How are you doing? How are you, Kennedy? I'm good. I'm good. Sharp as always. Thank you. I appreciate that, especially coming for you. <laughs> I sat down with Usher in Atlanta for a candid conversation where he spilled the tea on everything, including his celeb serenades to Kiki Palmer and Winnie Harlow during his Vegas residency, which went viral. Is that something you were expecting? I mean, I know multiple women who would probably love to <laughs> yeah, have that happen to them. By the way, I ain't doing nothing new. You're this, right. This is, this is the reality of what, you know, R&B, rhythm and blues shows have been. Mm-hmm. I want us to be able to look around and say, we built something. Absolutely. You know what I'm saying? Something magnificent came out of this. Mm-hmm. Wasn't just some great songs. And he tells me why he once considered walking away from music. I found what I wanted to do at a very, very young age. Yeah. But things did begin to change. It began to become very difficult. I lost my voice. I went through, mm-hmm. you know, changes. Um, there was, you know, the opportunity, there was a thought that I might not necessarily make it. So mm-hmm. I did start thinking, okay, well, what, what else am I going to do? We have more of this very special conversation with Usher coming your way soon. Keep following Revolt Black News for all the details on that. Well, that wraps it up for us. Remember to stay connected with us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Revolt on YouTube, our Revolt Black News podcast, and download the Revolt app. Until next time, good night, everyone. needs an alarm in the morning when McDonald's has sausage egg and cheese McGriddles and a breakfast cut off ba da ba ba ba